Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hello. Welcome, new faces and old. Uh, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I'm one of the preachers here at GFC. And my wife, Steph, and I uh, ask our kids, Aiden and Addie, a lot of questions throughout the day. Uh, some of those questions are like this. What would you like to eat? Or are you really sure that that's a good idea? Or where are your clothes? I know some of the other families ask that one a lot. Uh, I'm looking over there. <laughs> um, but, but by God's grace, I think that the most important question that we get to ask our kids on a regular basis is who is king in your heart? This is both a very simple and also an extremely profound question. Because how my children answer this, how they understand this question, directs every decision and every thought and every moment of their lives. And so this morning, let me ask you this same question. Who is king in your heart? So worthy, God. Jesus, I heard someone say, thank Lord, you. I pray for all of thank us you. Here. And I hope that all of you answered that question, Jesus. But what does that really mean? What do you understand the phrase, Jesus is king in my heart, to imply about your own life? What does Jesus is king mean about your decisions, about your thoughts, and about your actions? So friends, this is the question that we're going to be exploring here this morning, because this is a question that we all have to ask ourselves repeatedly again and again throughout our lifetime. And it's what the early church in the book of Acts was dealing with as well in the verses that we are going to be reading here this morning. So today we're going to read Acts 17 verses 1 through 15, and we're going to see that if Jesus is the Christ the anointed one, that means the king, then his word must be the lens through which we interpret everything in our lives and we must obey that word. We'll see this morning two case studies of how Jewish leaders in two different cities responded to the word of God that was being preached by Paul and Silas. And the first example that we will see is of what, what it looks like to interpret God's words through our own personal lens. And then the second example is we will see what it looks like to interpret everything in our personal lives through the lens of God's word. And by seeing these responses, I hope that this morning we can better understand what it means to make Jesus king in all of our hearts let's start by reading acts 17 verses 1 through 9 now when they had passed through amphipolis and apollina they came to thessalonica where there was a synagogue to the jew of the jews and paul went in as was his custom and on three sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. 
and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Friends, in these verses, we see an example of the dangers of rejecting the truth of God's word in favor of our own interpretations. Paul and Silas arrive in the city of Thessalonica in verse 1, and Luke sets up the reader of Acts to take note of an important fact, that the setting here is once again in a Jewish synagogue. So let's start by looking at some context here that Luke, the author of Acts, is setting up for us. We know from Philippians 3 and other sources that Paul, whose Hebrew name was Saul, was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. So he is very comfortable here in the setting of a Jewish synagogue. It says in verse 2 that this was his custom to go to these synagogues as soon as he arrives in a new place. But it has been some time since the last, uh, since he was last in a Jewish synagogue, since he was last able to reason together with his brothers and sisters from the Holy Scripture. We know that. Remember from Acts 16:9, Paul saw this vision of a man from Macedonia who was calling for Paul to come and help us, it says. But for Paul to obey that call, he had to move farther and farther away from the Jewish culture, from the Jewish heritage that he was comfortable with, even to the point where in Acts 16.13, he did not even have a synagogue to go to. He simply had to find a place of prayer beside a river somewhere. So why does this matter? Why does Luke set up this setting? And highlight it for us, his audience, to read. I think he does this because he wants his audience to pay careful attention to the way that the scriptures, that is the law of Moses, are being handled here. We are in a Jewish synagogue. And so how they handle the word of God is critical. Because this is the word of God, what was handed down to the people of Israel. This is the most important thing that sets these people apart from the Greeks who are around them. And so this is what Paul brings to the table 
in the synagogue every Sabbath for three weeks. Verse 2 says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 3 says that he explained and he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So this word of God is found is the foundation on which he makes the claim that Jesus is this Christ. And that word Christ means the anointed king who has been chosen by God. That is his argument here. And some of them, it says in verse 4, were persuaded. <clears throat> but look at how the Jewish leaders responded. In verse 5, they were jealous. Then they took wicked men and they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar, it says. And then they go and attack the house of Jason and drag him and some other brothers out to the crowd and then before the council. What a contrast that is, friends, to the reason and the explanation and the proof that characterize the message of Paul and Silas. So what is the charge that these jealous leaders bring against Paul and against Silas? Verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Right, these are the guys who have turned the world upside down. As opposed to us who have simply formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and dragged people out onto the street. They are the ones who have set the city in an uproar. But verse 7 gets to the real heart of things. It says that they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Aha, there it is. There is the problem that these leaders have. There is another king, Jesus. So why is that driving them crazy? Isn't that what they're hoping for? They know from the scriptures that there has been a promised new king for Israel. He even has a title. This title is the Christ, the anointed chosen king of God. This is what they should be waiting for. So why are they upset? Friends, I think that it's because in their minds, Jesus can't be this king who was promised by their scriptures. Because Jesus died. That's not the kind of king that they want. Israel is still subject to Rome. That's not matching the interpretation that we have made from scripture. Our worlds would be turned upside down to accept this claim that Jesus is this promised Christ. And so they have only one choice to accept Jesus and turn their world upside down 
or to reject him. And by rejecting him, reject the scriptures. So scriptures are rejected and reason is rejected and Jesus is rejected. And friends, Caesar is still king. So how does this apply to us this morning? Friends, do you see how dangerous it is to interpret God's word through the lens of our own expectations and our own extremely limited view of God? Like these leaders here, we can end up rejecting the very thing that we need for salvation and instead replace it with the thing that we should most despise. How often do we use the scripture to justify terrible treatment of those who have treated us terribly? How much do we major on the portions of scripture that require others to change rather than the portions that may require us to change? How often do we deny the goodness of God because of our own experience of suffering or the suffering of those who we love? Friends, this morning, imagine if you thought that God had promised you something. Maybe a particular job or a spouse or a bodily healing. Because after all, we read in the scripture that God is love. And doesn't it say in the Bible that God has good things planned for us? So are we out of our out of our reason to expect these things? But then imagine that you don't receive that good thing that you believe God had promised you. You don't get that good job or that good spouse or that good healing. You would feel hurt by that, wouldn't you? Hurt by God. Maybe even feel betrayed. But then friends, you face an important question. What does it mean that Jesus is king? How do you interpret this apparent failed promise? This unanswered prayer? Did maybe you misunderstand God's promise? Or maybe you decide that God doesn't want good things for you. You decide that God isn't love. Maybe the Bible is just a book after all. And this is not a new temptation, friends. But we cannot miss the uncomfortable truth that it points to the fact that we are in significant danger of rejecting the kingship of Jesus in our hearts in favor of our own. 
So is Jesus really king? And what does that really mean if he is king? I find it so ironic that this is the accusation in Acts is the same exact one that was brought against Jesus himself during his trial. Listen to the exact words of Pilate during Jesus' trial in Luke 23, verses 2 through 4. And they began to accuse him, that is Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Do you see, friends? The question at the heart of the matter here is what does it mean for Jesus to be Christ? That is the anointed chosen king. And Jesus himself, when faced with this question, doesn't deny it as an accusation. And yet uh, Pilate still finds Jesus to be without guilt. And that raises a critical question. Is the kingship of Jesus a threat to earthly authority? Well, Pilate himself here recognizes the innocence of Jesus. Because, friends, the throne that Jesus came for, that he received as an inheritance from the hand of his father, is not an earthly one. But it is so much more important. Another question is that does the kingship of Jesus really turn the world upside down well friends the answer to that depends on how willing we are to stand up and get ourselves out of the throne that belongs to jesus and so in these first few verses luke has demonstrated for us that the kingship of jesus certainly does not mean that we have a right to interpret God's words through our own lens. But Luke will go on and will continue to show us here this morning what it does mean. It does mean that we must interpret everything else in our lives through the lens of God's word. Let's read the next section this morning, verses 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica 
learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. In these verses, we see what it means to recognize that Jesus is king. It means that we are willing to subject everything to be interpreted by his words. Notice the similarities of what's happening in Berea in this section and the previous section in Thessalonica. <clears throat> Again, we're here in a Jewish synagogue. It says in verse 10, so the setting here is the same. And again, Paul preaches the word of Jesus as the Christ, verse 11. So his message is the same. But what are the differences? Look at the response in verse 11. They examined the scriptures to see if these things were so, they submitted their interpretation. They took what they thought was true and they submit it to the scriptures. They begin with an understanding that God's word is true. So his word the word of the king, above all else, must be the lens through which we interpret everything. And what are the results of this humble examination? Verse 12, many of them therefore believed. And we see another contrast here to the some who were persuaded in verse 4. In Thessalonica. But what a glorious fulfillment this is. To the call of Paul and Silas. That they have come here. They themselves obeying the word of the Lord. Remember Acts 16 verses 6 through 10. This entire journey into Macedonia. Started because Paul and Silas tried to go into Asia but they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then, similarly, God's word prevents them from going to Bithynia. And so Paul receives this vision, this call from a man from Macedonia, asking for help. And he concludes that God had called them, it says, to preach the gospel there. Did he conclude rightly? Yes, because they are submitting their own interpretation of all of these events to his word. Not because of the results, 
but because of their obedience and their submission to the word of God. And so even when these furious leaders from Thessalonica follow Paul and Silas and continue to stir up more and more trouble for them, Paul and Silas continue to submit everything to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do we know that they interpret all of this in submission to God's word? After all, they do leave Berea in verse 4, just like they were forced to flee Thessalonica. Well, we know this because by looking just a little bit ahead, sorry to the next preacher, I'm stealing the first section of your, of your passage. <laughs> a little bit ahead, we can see what happens here in Athens. In verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Again, right back in the same place where God's word has called him to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Regardless of what antagonism he faces for preaching that same word. He submits everything to the call of Jesus Christ. So how does this apply to us? First, examine the scriptures to see if it is true that Jesus is the Christ. Examine the scriptures to see if it is true that Jesus is the Christ. And if it is true, which friends, I am thoroughly convinced that it is, then these verses show us what it means that he is the king. If he's the king, then his word is the lens through which we interpret everything. And friends, we obey. Everything. In the incredible wisdom and timing of God, as I was preparing this message for you this morning, he gave me an opportunity to see firsthand if I would literally practice what I was about to preach. Something that I felt was clearly the hand of God in my life that was finally going to resolve a major uncertainty for me in my life has gone far, far from as I expected this week. Now I'm back at square one. And so this week, as I've been preparing this message, I have been wrestling very personally with questions like, did I really hear from God? Was all of this just a waste of time and effort and prayer? Was I wasting all of that? And most of all, what am I going to do now? But friends, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, as I have been preparing this, as I still have very few answers, I have been able to anchor myself in the unassailable truth of God's word. 
that Jesus is king. And not just in some abstract, hyper-spiritualized sort of way. Very practically, in my life right now, Jesus must be king. Because that is foundational to how I think and how I feel and what I do. And I am safe in submitting all of my hopes and my plans to the word of the Lord. And friends, this morning, so are you. You are safe in submitting to the word of the Lord. So submit your interpretation of your suffering to his word. Submit all of your hopes for the future to his word. Submit your interpretation of what justice and what mercy look like to his word. Submit your interpretation of what peace and security look like to his word. But most of all, friends, this morning, submit your interpretation of your right or wrong standing before him to his word. Because, friends, the scriptures prove that it was necessary for the Christ to die and to rise from the dead. Why was that necessary? Because that was the only way for your sin and for my sin to be paid for. To be paid for by the blood of the king. Friends, without the blood of Jesus interposed between you and a holy God, then you stand before him condemned. No matter what other things you think you could argue that should cover the cost of your sin. The word of God says differently. And so you must interpret your standing. Not according to yourself and your own lens. But according to his word. But if. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, is king. Then he is the king. He can be the king in your heart. And if you have given him the rightful throne, then he, friends, has redeemed you. And his word says that he has paid for your life. And everything that you encounter... Blessing or suffering is in his hands. If he is king in your heart. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, for Jesus who paid the price to receive from us the kingship in our heart. God, thank you that you have saved us. 
Lord, this morning. Thank you that we can be together here praising your name, which is so, so worthy, God. Lord, I pray for all of us here in the things that we'll be facing this week that we would submit all of those things to your word. God, that our hope would not be in the things that we think should happen or the promises even that we hope for, God, but only in the promise of your son. God, we thank you and we praise your name this morning. Amen.